Welcome to the Soccer Doctors Podcast with Dr. Andy Harper and Dr. Craig Duncan. Well, hello and welcome to our first, very first episode of this exciting new venture called Soccer Doctors. And um, apropos the title, we are two doctors, now three for today to get us going, who also are soccer fanatics, football fanatics, but um, not being hung up on nomenclature. We're, we're happy to be bilingual and we can inter, interchange some terms. Football and soccer, so welcome. I'm Andy Harper, um, Craig Duncan. Uh, the two of us go head to head regularly on these matters. <laughs> and today to get us going, also welcome uh, Dr. Steve Georgiakis uh, from the University of Sydney. Blocker, how are you going? Uh, great, uh, great to be a part of this. And uh, I heard the first podcast, and uh, I heard you talking about Duran Duran, and <laughs> I needed to be a part of this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, they were a good band, though. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to work out where uh, Harps's background is. Well, if you could imagine <laughs> the now, pop music, if you could imagine Steve Jujakis with enough hair to have a Simon Le Bon haircut. Yes, they, those days did exist. Craig still got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I can tell a little funny story playing. We played together at Marconi, of course, uh, probably 33 decades ago, and uh, a few of us were pretty much into the nightclub scene, but I remember Harp sitting at home there listening to 1960s music. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, enough of the, uh, uh, the popular <laughs> culture there. Yeah. Uh, thanks for, uh, you know, for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm very passionate about football, as you probably know. Um, I teach football and sport at the University of Sydney and have done so for the last uh, 30 years. I'm, I'm more passionate about um, the grassroots level stuff, mm. um, but I understand the relationship between the elite level stuff and also the grassroots level stuff. Mm. Mm. Um, hopefully Craig will convince me about the uh, real importance of the sports science stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Over time, you never know. Well, it's a minor, 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 <laughs> minor part of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, I thought, you know, it's, it'd be important, I think, just to establish how the three of us came together. Mm. Uh, and other people listening might be able to trace their own journeys and, and those particular connections. Mm. But um, I thought the first thing we'd get out on the table really quickly is how um, we got involved in soccer, even when. So, Craig, when did your, how did you end up in soccer? Not as an adult and a professional, but the journey started as a... Uh, absolutely. I, I don't know how mum and dad enrolled me in the local local side. It was Mount Kringo. I, I was four years of age and uh, I was just, yeah, it just went up to the local club and registered mm. and then just played ever since. And that was it. And it was, I think it was just to play. I don't think mum and dad were thinking of, oh, we've got to exercise because that's good for your health or anything. It's just what kids did. Mm. And soccer was the sport. Um, I'm sure mum probably it was soccer because she didn't want me to get hurt playing rugby league. And, and that's where I started. What about you, Bob? Um, probably two eras. The first era was that um, my dad obviously loved um, the old Panhellenic Soccer Club, which, for those of you who don't know, was the, the pillar of the Greek community in Sydney in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And uh, my first memory was at um, uh, the old Wentworth Park, um, which now hosts the Greyhounds. Uh, and I was four years old at the time. I'm not going to bore you to death, but uh, at the age of 23, I quit playing soccer and hated soccer and uh, had wanted nothing to do with soccer. Um, and then Andy Harper came into my life. Um, he came into the University of Sydney to see me about a certain uh, issue, um, gave me some tickets to Sydney FC. I'd never watched a Sydney, F uh, never watched a Sydney FC match before in my life. I invited my father along to it and all of a sudden, I rebonded with my father like I did, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years earlier. Um, and then became a fanatical supporter of the A-League. Um, but more importantly, it uh, rekindled my interest uh, in the sport. And uh, I regret to this very day having a probably a 15 to 20 year period where I had nothing to do with the sport. Why was that, Steve? Um, I mean, I wasn't a great player, but I really loved um, the sport. All things are relative. You're a national team representative. Mm. Right? You're in the uh, Olympic Games team. So just a little bit of context there before you continue. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And I, I played with uh, guys like Mark Bosnich and Paul Ocon and, you know, some of the people that were the 
the greats of um, are the greats of, are the greats yes. of, of Australian football. And, um, you know, you, you get involved, you get injured, uh, and you feel a little bitter and betrayed about um, um, football and the way that your career ends. And I never really had anyone to, to mentor me and to say, look, you, you love the sport, you're no longer playing, but there's opportunities for you to still be involved in the sport. Mm. So I'd like, sort of like spat the dummy. Mm. Um, yeah. And I regret that every single day that um, I love the sport. And even though my career finished, I should still have been involved in, in the sport. Um, as part of my work at the University of Sydney, I, I try to educate um, aspiring athletes to really love their sport, not just for the monetary stuff, but also for the other benefits. Another reason why he fits in so well with this discussion. Yeah. Is those themes come out a lot if you listen to Craig's work over many years. There's a, there's a lot of concurrence there. Yeah, I'm concerned that athletes don't love their sport. I think there's a lot of players now playing because it is exactly what you said, uh, that it's for monetary reasons or lifestyle reasons rather than they're really passionate like we were when we were just kids, mm. that you just couldn't wait for a rainy day like today mm. to go out and get uh, dirty, basically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, let's not get ahead ourselves because we want to know what we're arguing over here as, mm. as this goes on. So um, I came back in contact with Steve after those, well, after his sort of time in the wilderness, really. Mm. Um, and it's a pure, pure happenstance. But when I got involved with Sydney FC at the start of the whole AV thing um, as their inaugural CEO, which is another series of stories in reserve. Short-lived. <laughs> short-lived, yeah. Short-lived, very short-lived, but jam-packed. But we need to discuss that at one point. Well, well, we can do. We can do. It was quite an amazing um, quite an amazing thing. But for the purposes of this forum, Sydney FC, when like a lot of the A-League clubs when it started, was a name and a set of colours. There was no office. There was no nothing, no phone, no anything. Mm. And so one of the things we had to do was to try and find a training venue. And I made contact um, with the University of Sydney, a guy called Rob Smithies, who was running the sports centre over there. Um, his own soccer story and university is interesting as well, as it would emerge. But the point is... I'm, I'm sure he's listening now. Yeah, right. Well, Rob, good day. <laughs> Sydney University's first football scholarship holder. Yeah, right. Okay, well, there you go. And, look, I'm re and I really enjoyed my exchanges with Rob, but I spoke to him about maybe Sydney FC establishing some sort of, if not connection, base mm. uh, at the university. Anyway, nothing happened. And surprise, surprise. A lot of the things that you put on the table don't happen. But then I thought, I want to get back into doing some uni because I, I need to answer a couple of questions for myself. So I sent an email to, to Rob Smithies and said, Rob, this is what I want to do. Um, I didn't understand the structure of the university, what the health and fitness centre was in connection with the educational operation at university. And he said, do you know anyone that I could sort of send this basic idea to? And he copied in Steve Georgiakis. And I thought, I looked at the CC line of the email and thought, it couldn't be the Steve Georgiakis. It, it surely it couldn't be. And I hadn't, we hadn't said a word to each other, not out of anger or anything, but from the day Steve left Marconi with both his legs strapped heavily with buckets of ice, with yeah. ice packs, because that's that was my enduring memory, of the, and hence yeah. the nickname Blocker, yeah. because he was walking around with blocks of ice always on his calves and his thighs and his knees. I haven't seen him since the Marconi experience finished. Had no idea that not only had Steve gone on into academia, but he was even that way inclined, yeah. right? Because in the days of Marconi, as big a club as Marconi was and as rich a football experience, it was still largely part-time you know i was working full-time you didn't have days on camp with players in in massage rooms talking and understanding each other steve george arcus and i were like close teammates but ships passing in the night yeah right mm, yeah we saw each other in the dressing room he was this significant figure in the dressing room with ice always on his legs <laughs> And I was almost too scared to ask what the hell was the story with the ice. Oh, what was the problem, sir? You've got to move on. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to dig up. So, so that's when Sydney Uni, and it turned out to be the same Steve Georgiakis, who in the intervening periods had done his PhD and now lecturing. So that then has led five years later 
to putting you guys together and the three of us together to talk mm. about all this sort of stuff because mm. it's uh, they're all fascinating discussions, which gets us going to get us now eventually after the intro into um, Steve setting for us the platform of sport. So we're here in 2021 talking about, and you do all the time, Craig, and this series of podcasts is going to talk about a whole pile of issues about sport. Well, I thought it'd be really good for us to actually come to grips with the whole sport thing. Yeah, what is sport? What is it? Yeah. What are we fighting over? Yeah. What are we yeah. arguing about? Why is it so entrenched in our society? Why is it a thing? Mm. And is it is it something worth preserving, worth striving for, worth protecting? Now, we three would say, yes, of course it is. But are we just a conservative rump on the evolution of history, human history? hanging on to for something that's just going to die anyway? Mm. Or is it something worth preserving? Well, to answer those questions, um, like all this stuff, you've got to understand the origins of it. Mm. Um, the history. And, and, and yeah. where it came from, how it became so entrenched and connected. And Steve is a wizard at this. I've sat in and listened to his lectures at the Sydney University with the foreign students, teaching them about Australian sports culture and the ed students about understanding sport. And the whole games philosophy and athleticism philosophy, Steve, is brilliant. And you start the whole journey way back centuries ago in a nation state called Sparta, almost. Look, look I, I was always a prolific reader. And, um, and, and I remember once at Marconi, just before I was sacked in uh, you know, early 1993, I was reading um, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot. <laughs> and um, is that a translation? Well, it, 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 you should understand. Back in those days, you would train in the evening, which in itself was quite strange, and then play in the day. And, mm. and like Hart said, I, I would race from uni and try and get to training on time. And there was traffic, and then you'd train and then go home. But anyway, going back to that story, one of the few conversations we had, even though we're, you know, I consider you one of my best friends, he turned around and said. Hey, hey, everyone, look at Blocker, because that was my nickname at the time. He's reading a book, you know, called The Idiot. It's, it's you know, been made after him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so when Craig says to me that, you know, Andy's very intellectual, I said, well... <laughs> I didn't, I don't know if I said intellectual. He just uses words I don't understand. <laughs> it's a skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, to go back into my reading... Um, uh, reading my background's Greek I'm very proud that I'm Greek background but I was very interested in ancient Greek um, society um, I grew up in, in Australia um, and I noticed that if you have a look at the ancient Greek society and you have a look at the modern Australian society there are some commonalities there and the biggest commonality was this love of sport and the centrality of sport in the respective societies. Um, and then if you look at it a little deeper, you have a look at what were some of the greatest societies. I mean, arguably, uh, and this is my personal opinion, what were some of the greatest societies that, that existed on earth? And you, you have the example of uh, the ancient Greeks you have the example, of course, of Australia. And, and my dad was very passionate about Australia because he saw this land that um, people loved sport. You were able to, you know, raise a family. Um, my dad talks about the, you know, the, the pride that he had that the Birchgrove Primary School was able to teach his son how to swim. He wasn't able to swim, even though he loved the beach. And then if you look at the, the British Empire itself, and for those of you who, who didn't know for a very long time, Australia was part of this empire called the British Empire. And in this particular society, sport had a very, very elevated position as well. Um, so that always fascinated me to say that, look, you know, sport is this very, very powerful institution that can give us so many benefits, um, not only making World Cups and bringing the world together, but benefits at the grassroots level, um, social benefits, health benefits, teaching people life skills. And they were the, that was the common thread, I believe, in these three great societies. 
Um, the real big question now, of course, is, um, is sport as privileged in modern 2021 society as it was in previous eras? So when, when you linked the game's philosophy, and if, if you can sort of even just talk and articulate for us, what is the game's philosophy? What is the philosophy of athleticism, which underpins Sparta? Because a couple of strands in that I want to explore with mm -hmm. you guys a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So can you nail those down for us? Look, in life we have, and historically in life, we have a rite of passage. So um, when you're born, you, you know, you, you become an adult and along the way, there are certain things that you have to do. And in our society, in, in the ancient Greek world, and, and um, you know, as part of the British Empire there as well, sport was something that uh, males in particular, and, and not excluding females as well, but males in particular, had to involve themselves in. Um, Why? Sorry? Why? Why did those societies use sport like that? because of a number of outcomes that could have come out of that. Um, for the ancient Greeks, it was about the idea that if you, if you have a healthy body, if you're fit and you're exercised, you're also a more noble person. Somebody who is more beautiful, is beautiful and, 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 and attractive, is also someone who's smarter. So if you're gonna educate the mind, that's important. We need to communicate with each other. We need to build temples. But you also need to educate the body as well. As well. So that's interesting because a lot of the ancients speak about that philosophically as well. Like, uh, you know, uh, Socrates, the Stoics, all these ancient Greek uh, philosophers as such, or philosophy schools that started there, are quite... Um, identify exercise as a key part of life. Well, the great philosophers were all athletes. Mm. I mean, Aristotle was a, was, was a wrestler. Was a wrestler. Um, Alexander the Great was, a, you know, was a swimmer, was an athlete. And, uh, you know, his biggest regret was that he never won at uh, the ancient Olympic Games mm. like his father did. So it, it's an institution where sport is valued. Um, Could I ask Steve, just yeah. sorry, if they weren't good athletes, would they have been the Aristotle and the Alexander the Great that we know? No, of course not. So that, that raised them publicly and people were more inclined to listen because of their athletic prowess as well. Well, you live in a society and even our modern society where you, you want excellence. And of course, for the ancient Greeks, it was this term, um, you know, you, you know, well, healthy mind and healthy body is the, the philosophy behind it. But to, to, to excel in life, to, 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 to aim for something, you've got to also educate and, and train the body as well. Mm. Um, and, and, and it was just a given. Um, it's something that you did. Uh, something that uh, I know Harps talks about growing up on the North Shore that he did, something that I did at um, Birchgrove Primary School, um, and, and obviously something you did as well. Mm. Um, we, don't want to know, we don't want to go into the history of the ancient Olympic Games, but, but yeah. they weren't organised by accident, I wouldn't assume, listening to you, Steve. And, and Look, everyone talks about the Olympic Games and ancient Greek society, but the Olympic Games are one part of the sporting system. The sporting system exists. It's a compulsory part of the education system. Um, if we look at uh, Athens and growing up male in Athens, you go to the reading and the writing school, you, you go to the music school. And of course, you go to the sports school. If you look at Sparta, you, you have the reading and the writing school, but you have a, an emphasis there on the sporting school. Um, so it's institutionalized uh, into the, their particular way of life. And the, the Athenians and the Spartans were fighting against themselves. But the important thing about the Olympic Games is that when the Olympic Games came around, um, 
the conflict disappeared. Mm. Um, you could not undermine the institution of sport. Mm. I, I mean, it's, it's up here. Let's see if we can very quickly with your expertise, separate Athenian sport maybe and Spartan sport. So if Athenian sport and jump all over this, if I'm driving down the wrong laneway here, Athenian sport is philosophically driven in part by the aesthetics, by the, by the, the mind power. The Spartan philosophy of sport is a, more geared to a war footing. Uh, and Spartan society famously is one of the rare examples in human history where an entire society pivots around war and war mentality, war state. Am I, am I within the flag still here on this? Well, you're 100% right. I mean, the, the greatest fighting force that ever existed, the greatest ideology, who knows, maybe they were or they, or they weren't. I mean, were the Spartans, and, and it's because of the philosophy that they had in their particular upbringing of an overemphasis on sport. I mean, they were the first society to do that, but if you look at other famous and infamous uh, societies. I mean, if you have a look at Nazi Germany, I mean, Hitler was a, another individual who actually looked at the Spartans and said, well, if they became the best fighting force in the world, what is it that they had that the, you know, contemporary Germans don't have? And it was the sport. So maybe different sports, but, you know, sport becomes this institution uh, Stalin was the same as well. Um, you know, it's fascinating to read that, you know, in certain periods of Soviet Russia, more than 50% of time in schools was given to physical education for both, you know, men and girls. But the, the differences there are a little bit uh, different. He saw them as being fit and strong, not so much for the military, but to go and work into the factories mm. and, and, you know, become this industrial power. How can we get them working um, harder and longer? So it's an ideology that exists in a society. And, you know, this is what I thought made Australia so great was this, you know, institutionalisation of um, sport. So we've skipped a couple of thousand years there, importantly. But, <laughs> but with your purview combined from ancient Greece and that period up until... Um, um, the, the, the start of the British Empire. So yeah. um, were the Brits the first ones, in your view, to take those athleticism philosophies and, and institutionalise themselves? Look, I went to a school called Fort Street High School in the 1980s, the early 1980s, and there was still an opportunity there for students to study classical Greek and Latin. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that, uh, you know, ancient Greece existed. The dates aren't really important, right? Mm. But what we do have in the 18th century at about the time that Australia is invaded and colonised by the British, you have this re-emergence of this philosophy of institutionalising sport back into the education system and into the society. And the British, um, the, you know, who had this colonial mentality, looked at ancient Greece and looked at ancient Rome and handpicked what they believed would make them this great imperial and colonial, colonial power. Um, and it's fascinating to think that this small little nation was able to colonise um, a quarter of the world population but like the Greeks, the institution that they used, I mean, you colonise people by, you know, obviously killing the indigenous people and, you know, decimating their cultures, but then you try and unite the colonies. How do you do that? Do you, you put guns to people's heads and say, look, Andy Harper, we want your, you know, you to be a part of the British Empire? Or more importantly, do you put together devices there. And the device that the, the British used was this thing called the games playing ethos. This idea that you, you, you went and you were socialized into the British way of life um, by playing sport. 
And what were those sports at the time? Well, this is Andy's PhD, of course, but at the school level, it was the playing of what we call football. But there were different forms of football. But the idea was that you went to any of these schools. Um, first of all, it was the private schools because they were the first established schools, but then it fed into the public schools. But you played football. Uh, in the summer months, you, you played cricket. Mm. And of course, when the girls' schools were established a little later, that same mentality um, was reproduced in their school systems. But the sports were different. They got into the rowing in the summer months and in the winter months, they got into the netball. Um, but it was this institution of sport that really was the most significant part of the um, education system. I'm reading a biography of, um, of someone who attended Brisbane Grammar School. I'm, I hope I'm not boring you no, out no, there, no. but, but um, the, the headmaster there, a guy called Rowe, who, who ended up dominating the, um, the private school's sporting system in Queensland, um, and then went on to the state schools and dominated the sporting system there for about a 50 or 60 year period he would constantly get complaints from parents saying that, uh, look, we're paying all this money to go to Brisbane Grammar and uh, the only thing they're learning is, is sport. Mm. And he would always reply that, um, you know, in the real world, the, the sporting captain of, of a school is a far more, is a far better em, um, employee than the ducks of the school. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. It is fascinating. So we wouldn't be that now. No, no. no. We, we're going to explore. I, 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 we're going to explore that, and I can't wait to hear what what you think um, about it. Just to finish off, or to cap off for the time being, that broad introduction to the to to institutionalising sport. I think that's what the sort of the key that that Steve's hit that that governments and organising bodies actually mandated that sport was going to be an integral part of society it's, mm -hmm. to profound effects over many centuries and globally and they were smart the brits steve weren't they because they were the only colonial force that actually used sport as a carriageway for their version of colonialism they were and i mean they were obviously the most successful colonial power in you know in modern history anyway i mean we all speak English around the world because of the Brits. Yeah. Um, we all play soccer football around the world because of um, the Brits. So you can't really underestimate their influence on modern world society. Um, but in the sporting domain, everything is British. Table tennis, um, you know, cricket. They were really into it. Uh, what we're saying is the Brits, the, the industrial era Victorian Brits were right into sport mm. and they got this whole games philosophy thing to huge commercial and political effect mm. for the sake of the empire, which obviously spawned modern white Australia um, with all the trauma that went with that. But, but it's, it's understanding, you know, I, I think how, how organized, um, and how coercive this was. And it didn't, I don't think people, because we're pretty laissez-faire in Australia, pretty laid back and people are into sport and I guess typically thought to be, you know, less worked up about things, bit of a, a misnomer of it. But where the, we've inherited this really powerful uh, doctrine on, on how to run your life. Mm. And I think what we're, what we're realising now is, I, I guess, signatories to that because um i don't know about you but um apart from the war aspect of it but i believe it I don't yeah know, do you do you still oh, believe it ah absolutely absolutely and that's why i have great fears about what's happening now in our school system in actual fact i was um i was speaking to a a teacher that i know and uh she's a friend of our family and she was over the other day and and she'd just been at the the swimming carnival 
and it was a local primary school uh, swimming carnival. And she said she's absolutely exhausted because she had to jump in 25 times during the swimming carnival to uh, actually pull kids, pull kids up. Because none of them know how to swim. How they, but they think they, they might. And, uh, and they jump in and then, yeah, they can't swim the 25 metres or the 50 metres. So the change that's actually happened, you know, I've got a sister that teaches as well. They're in charge of, you know, the, the primary school teacher is now, they're the PE teacher. They look out the, the window and go, oh, it's a bit rainy out there, sports off, because the curriculum is this full mm. of other stuff that is mm. not sport related. And then we're wondering why we've got all these issues of, mm. of adverse health conditions that are related to absence of physical activity. So with what you're saying, we're, we've, societies have shown us the way. Yeah. And for some reason, we've gone off track. Mm. But when did that happen? And why did that happen? Yeah. Oh, the answer's blown in the wind. Simple, really. I mean, it's debates we have all the time, but... Um, you see the the change in our society. I mean, we, we moved away from obviously the empire and we became this multicultural state uh, which still valued sport, but then the influence of money and business um, was too strong in our society. Um, but they couldn't make the association that the ancient Greeks did. And, and this is what I, I, I talk to corporates all the time, executives. Like I'm horrified to see if we've, we've got a chief executive that is not, not looking after themselves physically. How can the board sit back and go, oh, that's okay? Because the ancient Greeks would say, that is not okay. Yes. We have problems. Their decision-making is impacted, which I think is, is an absolute valid and easily uh, evidence-based argument. Mm. Mm. But we accept that. Mm. Well, look, on, on another level, if you have a look at um, Australia historically, I mean, we've discussed the grassroots level, but the grassroots was very, was no different to the business world up until recently. I mean, the business clubs were all sporting clubs. Mm. Um, uh, individuals who ran Australia, who were very powerful people in our society, had a connection, very strong connection to sport. Um, so in the last 20 years, I think ever since the 2000 and, uh, Olympic Games, Sydney Olympic Games, we have this move away from the, um, you know, privileging of uh, sport or sport participation across the board. The evolution is interesting. And <clears throat> again, for people who are trying to wrestle with this octopus that is sport and where it's been and where it's going and how we manage it in the meantime, and even if we agree with where it's going, if we don't, how, how do we change it, change course? To under, understand the, the DNA of the sports culture, which is what where Steve's, you've sort of started to take us. But what, what people need to realise is that as sport became a thing for the colonial imperial Brits, so too with the growth of cities from villages into industrial cities and the need to organise people and the need to regulate weeks and the need to keep people on the straight and narrow. This all went cheek by jowl with, the, with churches and other powerful institutions to make sure society, on the one extreme you could say it was to organise people's lives. On the other extreme, you could say, well, it was just about efficiencies and, and making sure things work. Mm. Um, whichever, whatever part of the spectrum you find yourself, the, the method of delivery was organised games, was sport. And, and this, is, this is the foundation that Steve's sort of presented to us philosophically. But the driving mechanism for this, which I'd really love people to start maybe considering is this is this ideology of muscular Christianity, which is very prominent in those days. And it's, again, it's absolutely anchored in the Greek philosophy of healthy mind, healthy body. But this time with a, with a modern Judeo-Christian overtone, and that is not only do you have a healthy mind and a healthy body, but you're more acceptable to God and you're more moral because by, by 
playing games and learning the discipline of games and subjugating yourself to rules and standards and mores uh, and using up physical energies on a football field rather than under your bed covers in the school dormitory, um, which was what the great evil. Um, this was a way of controlling people, of organising people, whether for the war effort or for the, the, the cotton mill down the end of the road. This is absolutely entwined. And the fertiliser for this, and I'm going to, this is still in publication in the classics part of your library or in the local bookshop. The fertiliser for this, and can't be underestimated, was a book called Tom Brown's School Days. Tom Brown's School Days was written about the rugby school in England by an old boy, published in the 1850s. This is before globalisation, before mass media. It went like wildfire. It had like four reprints in the first 10 years. And the book found itself to the, to the very ends of the British Empire. And this is gonna take us off into a couple of tangents, but which is fine. But the basis of Tom Brown's School Boys School Days, which should be read by anyone who's interested in sport, because mm -hmm. this is where modern sport came from, is that um, this urban middle class, this, this industrial class of entrepreneurs who were starting to establish schools because schools weren't a public thing before then. You know, one of the great misnomers that I struggled with in Sydney, and I think in Brisbane too, they call them the GPS, the Greater yeah. Public Schools. Yes. And they're all private. They're the most yes. private institutions in Australia. Yes. And I never really understood that. Um, but of course, based on the English public school model, but still they're private schools, Eton, Harrow, Winchester, rugby, they're private schools. And of course, if you understand the, the, the very quickly the origin of that is that these, these schools started being organised out of industrialisation and they, they were called public because prior to that, it was the rich kids at home with private tutors. And so the first move into broad education was a public school, quote unquote, because it wasn't in the private privacy of your own house with a private tutor. They weren't accessed to public people. They were still rich kids' schools. Mm. Um, and this became the engine room and Tom Brown's school days became the manual for these things. All the things. Harps, can I interrupt you? Yeah, yeah. You've come a long way since not knowing what Dostoyevsky <laughs> the idiot is. Hello, Tom Brown's school days now. It's well, very see, good. I've got to congratulate you. See, I can that. understand yeah. Tom Brown's school days. Dostoyevsky's, I can't even say it. <laughs> so I reckon I, I'd encourage people to read it um, because I, I, want to, I want to hear your views at this, this level now because mm. Tom Brown's school... When I, one of the things I did my PhD was to read uh, the diaries of in the in the Victorian State Library of the headmaster of Melbourne Grammar School in 1858, John Bromby. Um, I had to read them because Melbourne Grammar School was is apparently famous for playing scotch in the first ever game of Aussie Rules first ever, this ridiculous race to the first ever state. Which, which wasn't uh, Australian Rules yeah. football. That's that's another story. Well, we'll get on to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get on to that. But the story. point is, I had to, so I'm reading his diaries and this is the headmaster of Melbourne. It's not the Melbourne grammar we know today of like whatever it is, 1,500 boys. And these were small operations, one class operations, et cetera, at the time and growing very quickly. But what was important to him to write about in this day in June was this happened at school or that happened at school and references to his reading of Tom Brown's school boys, school days. Mm. As though it's like a, I'm setting up a school here for, for the church of England. And this is my, and this is how I do it. Yeah. Because Thomas Arnold, who was the headmaster was this entrepreneurial revolutionary educator. He cornered the market in this stuff. Mate, he understood the Greeks and the Spartans. He understood that I'm going to use my football game at rugby, which is historically what then became rugby union, the, the origin of it, but his rules at rugby he used to organise, discipline, train his, his boys, and it went that whole philosophy went right through the British Empire. Incredible, including to Australia. Um, when you read the book, you'll realise a lot of other stuff apart from sport comes in, like... Yeah hazing at universities like initiations like yeah. the, the the having your i can't remember the terms now but the year seven boys or the freshers 
and the and the older students using the younger kids to do all their chores and all these things which have continued, continued in these educational well, well well sydney universities had some issues with this in the last decade well you have the word called fagging, fagging you know right. who you know which is a, you know a way of bullying a, a, a younger and obviously from that i guess we get the word fag i'm i'm not particularly uh, sure there but just to clarify that to people that are listening here um like I said, you have this code in your life. And, and, and when I grew up, the code was playing sport. You know, we, my brother did it. He was actually better than what I was, but we all played it at, at diff, different levels. Um, for, for the ancient Greeks, there were these two books called the Iliad and the Odyssey that you may have heard of. If you actually read those particular books, the books aren't even about heroes. They're about heroes that are actually athletes. That's very interesting. So you, you grow up and your idols are Achilles and Odysseus. And, and what are these guys doing? You know, they're not on their Facebook and uh, they're not on social media. They're out conquering the world and playing sport. Achilles gets to the place called uh, Corfu there and he, he's sitting down... Achilles is one of the protagonists of the, the books there. And that's not important either, but he's sitting down watching this athletic contest in, in, in the classical Greek world. And, you know, someone turns to him and says, Achilles, you're not an athlete. And, uh, you know, he picks up the, the discus and throw the, throws it furthest than everyone else. Um, just to call someone a non-athlete is obviously to, you know, to insult them in some particular way. Then we move a couple of thousand years forward to the British Empire where Harper, Andy's talking about this book, Tom Brown's School Days. So if you grew up in Australia from the 1850s onwards, it's a standard text. It's like the Harry, Pot Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, my son can recite everything of Harry Potter, but boys growing up and girls as well, and we may move on to that, but let's just focus on the boys they would read that book. And, and what do you have in Tom Brown's schoolboys? We've got the playing of football, right? That the, the, you know, the protagonist there, the guy that everyone looks up to at the school is the best footballer. But you have the boys playing, and I'm 100% sure of this, they're playing bowls, they're playing cricket. And of course, they're attending horse racing. So everything revolves around this idea of um, playing sport. So, of course, people in Australia um, have to create something. You, you need to bind people together. How do you make Australia a country? You know, you've got um, working class immigrants coming here from Ireland and, and Scotland, they're Catholics, they're Protestants. You've got the convict class. You've got the big businessmen who want to exploit the land and you bring everyone together by um, getting them to involve themselves at sport at school. And then post-school, society revolves around sporting events. Um, we don't go to the Sydney Opera House to watch, you know, the ballet or the classical music. We go to one of the horse, uh, horse racing days that exist every single day of the calendar. We had seven or eight horse tracks in Sydney, um, a big race every day. Um, we then go and watch the football. We have the emergence of competitions in the various football codes. And then we watch the cricket in the summer. Um, and like I said, it's, a, it's an institution which revolves around sport. The only clubs, social clubs in the, in, in the, in the colonial Australian period that served alcohol were the sporting clubs. So that union was forged early. Very early. Um, you know, and I remember in the 70s going around um, in the city, we spent time in the city with my father. He looked after a few buildings in the city. And I remember looking at 
the boardrooms. I remember looking at the offices of the people that ran corporations had sporting memorabilia on the wall. Yeah. Um, you know, they attended Oxford and Cambridge, um, some of the biggest universities in the world, which also promoted sport. But the connection um, was sport. I reckon if you did a, um, a little exercise in public houses or bars around different countries mm. in Australia, and maybe 2020 is not great because they've become really commercial and niche and, and, and whatever, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s in Melbourne and Sydney, Johnny Warren wrote about this in his book, Sheila's Walks and Poofters, when they were doing a street parade for qualifying for a tournament. And anyone who's been through Sydney and Melbourne, probably Brisbane, will realise that those old style 50s, 60s, 70s pubs on the corner, inner city corners, instead of like having a sign out the front saying the, you know, the dog and duck yeah. or the royal, they'd have the beer brand of the brewery that sponsors the pub and that would be lashed across this, these tiled pictures on the wall of horse racing or cricket and rugby league. I still, yeah. Now, I don't reckon there'd be many places like that around the world. Like English public houses aren't like that. Down the country, and <laughs> you're they're right. too old for that. Mate, they were around before sport was a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's such a part of our, the fabric of our nation. Mm. And like even today, even today, mm. you would still say, is it? That's the, that's well, the I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. And, and I'm thinking of my life, you know, as a father and as a child and, and sport was a major part of it. Even, you know, in recent years, you know, like I know on Saturday this week, I will go and watch my son play cricket. Yeah. I, because you understand the value of it. Absolutely. That you have the opportunity, whatever, financial, um, geographical, like you're an advocate of it. I, I see that it's, uh, yes, that's true. I'm biased yep. towards it. However, I do see, and I think we'll touch on it later, the school system and, and sport and where people are actually getting the basic skills. I mean, I wanted to ask you back in the ancient, ancient days, what about people that couldn't, were there people that couldn't play sport? Because obviously we've got different levels of abilities. What happened to the people that couldn't, participate like we would have a lot like are you saying now there'd be a lot of people just killed off well we we of course know that the um the ancient spartans um you know examined uh, boys in particular when they were born to see if they had any defects actually would throw them off mount uh, tugitus of course in sparta but i think this idea of it's pretty it's pretty <laughs> profound yeah. Well, well, you know, it, it, it is. Um, but I think we've created this idea of differentiation. Um, you know, this mm -hmm. idea that, you know what, let's all of a sudden click a button in year eight and get everyone playing sport. And, and somehow everyone's going to be at the, at the same, same level. I mean, this should start off in the formative years of the development of, um, mm. of, of children. Um, Which it did, when, what happened? Well, I, I don't even think it's debatable anymore. Like as a society, we, we moved away from that particular model that, you know, we, we said that if you want to get your uh, sons and daughters to exercise, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the state that it should be up to you to organise the swimming lessons. It should be up to you to enrol your, your son and daughter in a, in a private school which promotes sport, compulsory sport. So we have this general move away from the, from the, from the government itself, who becomes neoliberal. It's a term that mm. you hear all the time now. See, I would have I assumed and speculated that it was maybe a leftist agenda. That, that, that started withdrawing or taking sport away from the core value of education? Well, you then have um, people with maybe leftist leanings who actually question the, you know, the belief in sport. Is it really overrated? I mean, they, they dislike it. They don't think it should be a central part because of... Because they can't be good at sport? 
Well, I, I suspect that's got a lot to do with it. They were marginalised out of it. I, I don't, I don't know, but they they don't see it as something that's valuable. That it's more important to adopt other policies. So you have the neoliberal business type people who are, are saying to you that it's your decision to 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 to, to it's a free market. Yeah. It's a free market. It's we're not going to pay for your um, son and daughter to eat the right foods and to exercise if you can't do this as a parent. Well, but we're going to pay for it. We are going to pay for it because they're going to spend more time in in with adverse health conditions, ultimately. I mean, I can't understand why that that link is, is not made. Mm. It's a very basic link. Mm. I mean, we're arguing here with your great uh, analysis of, and, um, of explanation of history that we've had successful regimes, yep. the most successful in history, and we're turning our back against it and saying, well, look, okay, if you want to take uh, Johnny um, to swimming lessons, good, go, go ahead. You enroll him in the soccer, uh, good. Mm. But um, as far as schools goes, that's how we're going to... Well, interestingly, and we'll draw a line under this and then continue with our next episode, but mm. interestingly, no empire lasts forever. Everything comes to an end. <clears throat> and so whilst, Craig, you make the very valid observation that, well, look how successful the Greeks and the Spartans were, and then look how successful the Brits were. Um, and in a modern sense, we might be saying, look how successful the Americans are. And that's another topic for discussion, how deeply post-colonial American sport isn't successful, but everything has an end. Our question is, can sport push through that? Do we need to hang on to it in the meantime? No, the question is, can Australia continue on as a unified society without sport? I think that's the, the important question here. Um, if you take sport out of the fabric of Australian society, what do you actually have? Steve, thanks. Hey, um, we'll, we'll take a recess. And if you're still with us, <laughs> we'd love you to join us next time on Soccer Doctors. Cheers for now. Thank you. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please contact us if you have any questions or feedback.